Welcome to the second in our, our Wolfson series of lectures on climate change. It's, it's a great delight to see so many of you here. Um, and it's also a huge honour to introduce Professor Carl Wundt, um, who's giving this uh, second of our lecture series. So Carl is the Cecil and Ida Green Professor of Physical Oceanography at MIT. He's actually spent all of his career at MIT from undergraduate upwards, and I guess all we can say is lucky MIT. Um, he's got, again, two numerous honours uh, to mention. He's uh, won the Bowie Medal, the Prince Albert the Premier Medal, the Morris Ewing Medal. He's an honour Fellow of the Royal Meteorological Society. Um, he's been made a foreign member of the Royal Society. And we're, we're again very privileged that he's here in Oxford for a whole year as the George Eastman Visiting Professor um, uh, situated in Balliol and, and working in AOPP. Um, I guess I got to know a little bit about Carl when I was trying to think about energy in the oceans. And, and so Carl has, has really written some fantastic. Uh, papers together with Walter Monk about abyssal recipes of the ocean and, and really tried to, to analyze how energy goes into the ocean to actually drive things like the overturning circulation. But it, it made me realize that Carl is actually perhaps at the heart of the energy of the subject of physical oceanography. He's an absolute leader and pioneer in that field. So it's a huge honor to have him speaking today. Um, and he's going to tell us why climate change is so difficult to understand. So thank you very much, Carl. Thank you, Roz, and thank you uh, to Wolfson College for uh, inviting me uh, to give this uh, talk. I, I should warn you that, because I see some experts in the audience, uh, that this is meant to be at most semi-technical. I'm really going to talk about uh, this question, uh, which, as you'll see, I hope, uh, is really, in some sense, about doing science rather than the science uh, itself. It's, it's part of the, uh, in some sense, a description of my own struggles to understand why this is such a difficult subject. So that's, that's my uh, theme. Uh, I do hope there'll be time at the end uh, for questions because I guess I've been told repeatedly that I'm a provocateur. Uh, but it's much more interesting for a speaker to get some reaction from the audience than it is simply to have dead silence at the end. So uh, here we go. Uh, what's the problem? There are a lot of problems in understanding climate, and uh, I'm going to range, uh, not completely uh, irregularly through them, but uh, somewhat incoherently, as I think you will see. I think some of the issues of understanding uh, climate are, as this says, uh, more about human psychology and human society than they are about the scientific problem uh, itself. And um, we, we do know a great deal about climate. And uh, I've been in this business, as it is for sufficiently long, to appreciate how much we have learned over the past uh, few decades. It's, it's a different talk to try to uh, go through the progress that has taken place uh, over the last 30, 40 years. But uh, anybody, of course, who watches TV or reads the newspapers will uh, re realize that uh, climate, climate change, past, present, and future uh, is fraught with all kinds of uh, 
argumentation and, as we'll see, religious beliefs as well. So here's an example of the sort of thing that scientists uh, do look at. I, don't, I guess we don't have a pointer, do we? Uh, uh, let, let me see if I can uh, talk you way through it. It's just an example of uh, the kind of curve that scientists uh, look at. There are thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of similar wiggly curves that I could show you. Uh, this one on, is a particularly interesting one. It goes back 60,000 years over there on your left, kind of comes up to the more or less to the present uh, on the right, and uh, in some ways a fantastic uh, record. It's gotten by drilling into the Greenland ice sheet, uh, which for reasons it would be fun to talk about, uh, records something to do with climate, uh, at least in central Greenland, back to about 60,000 years, and there are now longer records uh, than this. Um, I put a temperature scale up there on the left, says about 15 degrees uh, Celsius, uh, full scale, and uh, it clearly is related in a somewhat complicated way to the temperature um, of Greenland and perhaps the rest of the Earth through this period. Uh, the, the reason that um, this record is so interesting, well, there are actually many. Uh, first of all, you do see that there have been apparent temperature changes roughly as annual averages of about 15 degrees Celsius from the period uh, to the extent that you can make it out uh, about 20,000 uh, years ago at the height of the last glacial period. I'll show you a picture of that in just a, just a minute, uh, up to the modern period uh, where it's quite flat up there uh, on the right-hand side. Uh, geologists call this the Holocene. That's the period in which uh, agriculture starts and towns and cities are are built. And uh, there are a lot of things going on in this uh, record. Uh, some of the more interesting ones, the ones that I label there is so-called DO or Dansgaard Eschger events, when it appears that the temperature uh, jumped by about 10 degrees in less than 10 years, a somewhat scary uh, prospect should that happen, uh, happen again. Um, there's a, a lot of structure here. Uh, what I did put up way over on the right-hand side, those two little arrows uh, are an attempt to show you when we begin to get instrumental records of climate, and that's part of my theme, that uh, the instrumental record of climate is, of course, a very small fraction of this record, and the uh, Earth is something of the order of four billion years old. It's probably had an ocean for something like three to three and a half billion years, and so the climate has been changing over this immense amount of time, and uh, part of the problem of understanding climate is, of course, understanding uh, how it has changed, and of course, we'd very much like to know why it has changed, and then the social issue of how might it change in the future. Here's another record, Just uh, this one's taken from uh, Antarctica, just to give you a little bit of the flavor. This one goes back about 400,000 uh, years. It actually shows you both the temperature on the right-hand scale and on the left-hand scale, the carbon dioxide. And uh, again, it would be very interesting to discuss the relationship uh, between the, uh, those two uh, records and uh, is there something causal about one or the other. Um, there is a very complex interplay, which is really all I'm going to say about uh, 
carbon dioxide and uh, temperature uh, through time. Uh, it is true that you can see by eye that there are major changes take place over 100,000 years and smaller changes that take place over thousands of years and other changes taking place if you could, if it were recorded here, it is not taking place year to year. Okay, so here's the world maybe 14,000 years ago. Uh, extent that you can kind of make it out. There is Spain down there on the lower left. Uh, we're just at the edge of the white there. So you'd say, well, 14,000 years ago, there was an enormous glacier uh, 100 kilometers or so north of where we are now. Uh, you, of course, could have walked to Paris in that uh, time because sea level was down by about 120, 130 uh, meters, and uh, of course there were people around at this time, modern people, uh, presumably uh, recognizably like ourselves, and of course the change from uh, a world that looked like this to the world we know today, we do not believe was caused by those people. Uh, there are arguments about how many there really were at that uh, point, but um, it's certainly true that we've had ice ages long before there were uh, people. Uh, earlier in the Earth's history, uh, there are periods when there's no ice at all. The Earth is much warmer. Uh, intervals in which you have dinosaurs at the North Pole, you have palm trees in the middle of North America in places where they would never uh, survive uh, today. Uh, you go back uh, 500 million years, you have what is a plausible hypothesis uh, subject as most things are in this subject, a great deal of argument, an interval in which the whole Earth froze over, perhaps 100%, and uh, the so-called snowball Earth hypothesis, and uh, there's good evidence that this may well have happened. There's some interesting questions about if it did happen, how do you ever get out of it again, because you're reflecting all the sunlight back out into space. And um, so the, the main point and the reason for showing you these things, and we could spend weeks talking about the record of past climate change and what it is that we think uh, we know, is it comes down to what I would say is the single most important fact about climate that we have learned from hundreds of years of geology, geochemistry, geophysics, physics, uh, is that the climate of the past has been radically different from what it is today. Uh, I think it's probably true that had the geological record shown that the climate of the Earth had been stable for thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years, the debate about what the future might bring would be have a very different character to it. So th th this is kind of the background. We know that the climate of the Earth has been very different in the past. Uh, perhaps completely covered with ice, perhaps completely without ice, tropical uh, everywhere. That's, in some sense, the scientific background uh, to much of this. The difficulties that we get into uh, come when we try to understand why. And uh, there's a long list, of which this is a minute fraction, of questions about uh, how did this come about. And they range from the question of that, uh, what does the Greenland core tell you about Greenland? What does it tell you about the Northern Hemisphere? What does it tell you about the Earth as a, as a whole? Um, can you understand climate without understanding weather? This is a, 
computational issue to some great extent. To what extent does the system, what we see changing today, reflect the character of the climate system long ago. We know, for example, that in Antarctica, some of the ice appears to be a million years old, which means that it has a memory of climate conditions a million years ago. It also has a memory of climate conditions 100,000 years ago, 10,000, and of course last week. And uh, so how much of what we're seeing is a reflection of a system that is evolving uh, out of, if you like, the last uh, glacial period. So this is just a list. Uh, you don't need to read it. Uh, I guess I would argue that part of the difficulty of our political debates uh, is the sheer complexity of the elements that go to make up the climate state. And so without going down the list, if you wanted to claim that you fully understand the climate system, you've got to know a great deal about the physics and chemistry of all the elements, which are the land, the ocean, the atmosphere, uh, the sea ice, the glacial ice. Uh, you have to understand the geological record because that's where we get most of our information about the past. Uh, you find yourself worrying about the history of the sun. The sun, we're told, was much weaker a billion years ago. The earth wasn't frozen over. How did that come about? To what extent are the changes we see now year to year or decade to decade due to the changing sun? So one is suddenly confronted with the question, well, how much do we understand about the sun? Uh, there are lots of other issues. Uh, the earth's magnetic field protects life on the earth. Uh, life is a major component of the climate system. In fact, some people will tell you that the largest pollution event in the history of the Earth was when the oxygen rose from essentially zero uh, to what we have today through the invention, if you like, of photosynthesis. This is a climate uh, transit. So it says there almost, well, it is somewhat facetiously, uh, I'm very impressed by people who claim to tell us. They understand this. And Either there's nothing to worry about, or the sky is about to fall. It's very impressive. And then, of course, there's a whole subject, which I'm not going to go into today, of people who want to manipulate the system beyond what we're already doing inadvertently. Because, of course, we are manipulating the system. And then, uh, again, a slightly facetious um, comment, uh, you could imagine the pilot of an airplane coming back into the passenger cabin and asking for advice from the passengers. And to some extent, this is what goes on in the climate world. Everybody, everybody is an expert, and I know, I, I know a fair number of people who would be happy to tell the pilot what he ought to do, although most of us would probably say, you're the expert. You're the one who's been trained uh, to cope with this. There actually, it's interesting, and again, not to belabor this, there are many analogs uh, to the situation in medicine, which for many people is much more familiar. And I guess in some sense, uh, everybody's a medical expert. We all have our own medical history or those of our family, and so we know. Uh, here's one example out of many uh, you can come on. It reminds me a little bit of the climate hearings that go on in Parliament or in the U.S. 
Congress. Um, th this is a report in a very nice book by David McCullough about the building of the Panama Canal. And he's reporting a hearing held in the Congress, basically, as a commission chairman. He was a congressman at this time, uh, in which uh, he had before him the experts, the doctors, who were trying to deal with yellow fever in the canal zone, because at that point, they were afraid they couldn't build the canal because the workers were dying in their thousands. And um, the, the, the doctors, of whom Gorgas was one of the few, uh, had come to the conclusion that um, yellow fever uh, was contr controlled by the population of mosquitoes. And so there you have the commission chairman, who's a politician, not a doctor, uh, telling Gorgas, uh, who's a heroic figure in the history of medicine, that this is all rubbish and uh, what they should do is paint the houses and take the garbage out of the streets. And of course, fortunately, Gorgas and his uh, colleagues did eventually have their way. But it's, it is an example whereby everybody kind of thinks they understand disease uh, in the same way that everybody thinks they understand uh, climate. Uh, and there's a lot, it's very complicated, and so you can read that. This is from The Independent, probably about a month ago. Uh, some of you will remember that very cold week we had. It was probably in February, can't quite remember anymore. And um, The Independent reported um, a study that said this was due to the fact that the sea ice is vanishing in uh, the Arctic, which it, which it is. And uh, my question was, well, didn't we have week-long cold spells 100 years ago when covered by sea ice? And, of course, the independent didn't think to ask that. It, it's a confusion of weather and climate, which, of course, is quite common, and the distinction is not so easy to make. It was repeated on the BBC uh, when I uh, asked the BBC editor, um, couldn't they do a follow-up? with some commentary on it, and he said no, that they collectively had, as you said, the attention span of a fruit fly for this kind of story. They were on to the next uh, story. So there is a mismatch between what is not a, a terribly complicated uh, issue, uh, weather versus uh, climate, and our ability to deal with the, uh, with the public. Uh, this is from the Boston paper, where uh, I normally live about a year ago, uh, which is about sea level rise, uh, which, of course, is another consequence of uh, climate change. And it, it quite clearly, if you read the article, which I did uh, that morning over breakfast, uh, it confuses quite clearly the issue of sea level rise taking place over hundreds or thousands of years with the rather different problem of storm surges and uh, changes in tropical storm frequency or intensity or tsunami. And so there's a, uh, a, a kind of a natural, um, I think it's natural, confusion here uh, about this um, subject. And so, you know, where, where do we stand in this? And now I'll go, I'll change course a little bit here. Uh, what you can say is, look, the, the Earth has been very different in the past without intervention by people. And as I'll show you in just a little bit, there are part of the political debate uh, comes back to, to that statement. The earth has changed all by itself. Why should we worry about what people are doing? But in the modern context of what is going on, there, there really are 
what I would regard as two completely unprecedented events taking place, at least two, where the analog of the past simply breaks down. One is that we are increasing the CO2, as far as we can tell, faster than it ever increased naturally. And uh, there are many systems, I won't take the time to go into it unless somebody really uh, cares about it, where if you change them slowly, they're quite well behaved and nothing very exciting or dangerous happens. But if you kick them hard enough, they can become unstable. That's one of the worries. And then, of course, two, which is related to one, that we have seven billion and rising people uh, on the earth. And uh, people are both a, a cause of much of the climate change, and it isn't just rising greenhouse gases, it's cha changing in the, changes in the landscape, the reflectivity of the surface, among many other things. And of course, the consequences for, say, 10 billion people are quite different for us than saying, okay, 120,000 years ago, sea level was 10 meters higher than it is today, uh, when there might have been perhaps 10,000 or 100,000 people in the, the world. Okay, now here, here's part of the issue, um, so I'm changing tack a little bit. We, we suspect scientifically that much of what we see is not directly causal in the sense that many people like to think the world they live in uh, actually is, that you can understand why things are happening. And uh, as a scientist, you say it's also compounded by the fact that we evolved uh, to demand patterns, things that uh, we can understand and explain. This is an issue, Here, here's a famous curve, uh, very convincing I think, certainly was to me the first time I saw it. Um, this was published by uh, Professor Brooks, who was the Harvard professor of meteorology back in the in this period, and it shows you in the upper curve the, the lake levels in East African lakes. This is in the, well, you see 1896 to 1922. And the lower curves show you the number of sunspots there were, and Brooks made the point that these are remarkably correlated with each other. You look at that, I certainly said, oh, uh, has to be something going on there. Um, you know, it's 25 years of record. That's pretty convincing. The trouble is the record got longer. And uh, many of you know uh, Gilbert Walker, who was a famous uh, UK meteorologist of that period, a few years later pointed out that this was breaking down. And uh, the, the problem for Brooks was the record did get longer. Uh, here's another example, sky chart, a star chart on the left, uh, and on the right, one of the many constellations out there, uh, people for thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of years, tried to make sense out of what they could see in the sky. And of course, they did construct the constellations and the whole field of astrology, uh, which is, you can regard it as an attempt to make sense out of this and to interpret it in terms of things that matter to, uh, to those of us on the ground. And so the, the constellations, the stories, the Greeks, Romans and the Mesopotamians told about them come out of this human need to have a story about uh, the world around us. So there's a star chart, and uh, you know you stare at it as I have, and you say, "Gee, I see structures in there, and uh, I can maybe, well, depending on how imaginative you are, maybe you will see a horse or a bear." or a person, and the trouble is with this one is it's completely random. I made it my 
itself, there's no structure at all, but your eye developed to see patterns. And so scientists see patterns because they're people when none exist. Here's another nice example. Uh, many of you will know that around the turn of the 20th, 19th, 20th century, uh, there's a considerable astronomical literature having to do with uh, linear, linear features on Mars. Uh, the picture's on the right inverted because telescopes invert uh, the uh, planet are the Canali Chaparelli's misinterpreted as canals, but straight features is a literature on whom, what kind of intelligent life may, may have uh, constructed uh, these. And of course you have the War of the Worlds, um, which comes out of this period. And of course on the left you have the uh, satellite uh, images. And you, can, you know, if you stare at the satellite images, you can kind of see in some cases uh, where they perceived straight line. Structure. So it's, it's I, in some sense a nice example. Uh, and th these were serious astronomers uh, peering through telescopes trying to make sense out of it, seeing patterns on Mars that today we know uh, are artifacts of what their eye uh, was telling them about a rather low signal to noise ratio seen through a murky atmosphere. And this is part of the problem. Here's another one. This is the randomness one, um, which I like to use in teaching to try to give people a little bit of the flavor of what randomness uh, can do, where you kind of think there has to be a reason for it. There's a famous uh, game known to probabilists, the game of Peter and Paul. It's very simple. You can play it if you're at a boring dinner. Uh, we flip a coin. If it comes up heads, I pay you a pound. If it comes up tails, you pay me a pound. And we stipulate that this is a fair coin. And so here, here's a bunch of coin flips. And of course, uh, with a computer, I can do this many times. And so here I've played the game. And so for a long time, you're ahead. And then for a long time, I'm ahead. And then we come back to break even. This was just an accident of this set of coin flips. And now you ask. Um, uh, is climate like that? I mean, say, wh why was I so far ahead in that period? What's the reason for it? Well, there was an excess of tails for a while that slowly vanished. And so now if we look at the water level out there, to what extent is that the winnings? The coin for a long time, when, since we got here in September, the coin was coming up drought, drought, drought. Lately, it's been coming up rain, rain, rain. What's the reason for it? Well, uh, you will find, as in that uh, story uh, in The Independent, people who will happily tell you why. And, uh, but it may, be, it may be, I can't prove anything one way or the other, it may be no more than the luck of the coin toss. People don't like that. Okay, slightly different take on it. Um, this is, I believe, uh, the longest instrumental record in existence. It's the so-called Central England Temperature Record. The thermometer is invented around 1640, I think 1650, and in the late 1600s, it became a hobby of clergymen in the British Midlands, Birmingham and those places, to measure temperature. And uh, people like Manley and others uh, pieced these together, trying to account for the fact that they moved around, they lived and died, uh, to construct this uh, 
record, which of course you then come into the period in which the Met Office is making uh, more standardized measurements. And um, it's a very interesting record because you can see, for example, beginning about 1660, it looks like the temperature is dropping. And I guess I could imagine, uh, depending upon um, the government of the time, somebody writing a letter to the government saying we're about to enter a new ice age because the temperature's been dropping for 50 years. But then, of course, if you commence around, I guess, 1690, the temperature goes on up, and you say, oh, no, 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 uh, it's getting warmer and warmer. There's a great uh, trend. Um, to my eye, uh, there is what looks like a gross trend between about 1660 and the modern, uh, the modern period. Uh, but the, 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 in some sense, the interesting thing about this is it shows you how long you must measure in order to actually begin, perhaps, to see a trend. Um, the issue is whether this is going to continue like that or whether it's likely to turn around and come back, and I'm not going to go there. I also marked on there that little red mark, uh, the duration of a five-year NERC grant, uh, which is the way scientists get to study climate change. And this is one, in some sense, the fundamental issue, the mismatch uh, between um, the way our society operates. The fact that, well, in this case, you'd kind of think, well, you'd really do need a 300-year record to begin to, to see this because uh, you can, I can pick any 50 or 100-year period in there and get you what looks like a, a rather scary trend. Now, the problem, of course, is that this is central England. It's nominally one location. I don't know what happened in North America or Australia during this, uh, this period. How, how are we going to find out? I, I did mark in there with the dashed blue line the point at which oceanographers begin to get global scale measurements. This is to give you some sense of this uh, problem. Okay. So we, we don't really have records apart from these fragmentary and uh, interesting but fragmentary uh, um, records from ice cores or piece together, but we do have models, and uh, those of you who follow the literature will realize that uh, models, to some extent, uh, now play a very prominent uh, place. Uh, th these are, I, I don't want to belabor this, th th these are, uh, just look at the lower right-hand one, perhaps, uh, uh, so-called IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, which this report came out in 2000. Seven, another one coming out in a year or two uh, in which it runs from 2000 to 2100. Uh, mo model, uh, I won't call them predictions, scenarios of what might happen in 100 years. Now, keep in mind that 100 years is a very short time scale for climate change. Uh, what you do see, there's a considerable scatter. Some of that scatter is due to the fact that different assumptions were made about how much CO2 was going to be emitted, uh, which means, of course, that the climate problem includes not only the natural variability, but some estimate of what people are going to do, uh, en energy policy, uh, emissions, uh, wind farms versus burning coal. So people are part of the uh, climate problem and complex as, as human society 
uh, is. Uh, it's just a piece of the complexity of the climate society. So here's, a, here's another one. Uh, these are predictions from that same report of how much sea ice there will be in the Arctic in 2100. And we do know that it is declining. Uh, pictures like this are a little troubling because those models, which are in some sense discussed as though they are equally skillful, uh, give a sea ice cover for the Arctic, which is very important in the climate system, that ranges from about 95% in the upper curve there all the way down to zero uh, in the uh, other extreme. So you have to decide uh, which of these, if any, do you think actually have any skill. So we have climate models, and I've made in other talks, this analog. People were making models of airplanes in the 19th century. They weren't computer models. They were so-called analog models. They didn't have computers. And if you go to YouTube, you can see animations of this. They're fun to watch. Um, it was pretty clear that by 1800, some people had a pretty good idea of what would be required to make an airplane heavier than air flight. And they did start making models. And my question is, whether our models of the climate today are like these and the other three panels, when what you require is something like that. I mean, that's some, in some sense a full-scale model of a heavier than airplane. It is an airplane. The distinction between the model of the airplane and the airplane itself gets a little bit uh, fuzzy. I don't know. Uh, are we in an era in which you might think a rotary airplane is going to solve the problem of heavier than air flight? And now, of course, there are people who tell us, don't worry. Um, basically, um, this is not untypical of the public discourse. The key element here is in red. Uh, this is an interview with a physicist, a uh, US physicist at Stanford, um, on climate. And he's saying, basically, I won the Nobel Prize in physics. I can tell you there's nothing to worry about. And, uh, well, I made me think of that, which many of you will know uh, was never distributed in this country because it was printed to be used in the event of an, a successful German invasion. And um, something uh, that never happened. And um, so, anyway, uh, th there is this tendency for people to think that because they are expert in one piece of this problem that they are expert in others. And there is a tendency, particularly with Nobel laureates, I don't know what it is about winning that prize, that makes uh, some people think that they are now the world's greatest expert on everything. Okay, so here's another one a little bit more close to home. This is part of the context which we worry about. This was from The, uh, the Guardian uh, five years ago, or six years ago, uh, it quotes this man. Some people in the audience will know exactly who this is. I thought there ought to be a statute of limitations on dumb statements, so I blocked out his name. It is one thing about the internet. Uh, it's there forever, but uh, I don't want to do it. But he's basically saying the ocean circulation turned off for 10 days. What are we going to tell the prime minister when uh, um, it happens? Again, uh, this is, I think, not untypical of the level of public uh, discourse, and it is a, a well-known good scientist uh, 
in over his head um, because of the complexity of the problem. Uh, here's another one that is actually kind of worrying, just to give you a little bit of the flavor, that there are many things to worry about. I mean, I've been mainly telling you how complicated this story is, but there are many things to worry about, which I'm not going to belabor because there are many lectures in Oxford about uh, what can go wrong. Uh, it's been suggested, not, not, not again to belabor this, I'd like to leave some time for uh, questions, that if I go back, uh, if you can see the dashed line there, th that's the edge of the Antarctic ice sheet today. Uh, the region that is more or less white there is the region of what's called the West Antarctic ice sheet. Uh, the people who study glacial physics, uh, t some of them tell us that this is unstable and the whole thing could conceivably go sliding into the ocean. There's some evidence that during the last interglacial, or an interglacial today, that maybe it had melted and the sea level was a good deal higher than it was today. Well, here, here's a counter argument. Uh, he's saying, I'm not going to give you the time to read it, he's saying he doesn't think so. He doesn't think the probability of that happening abruptly um, is very great. It would be about a seven meter rise in sea level. And uh, I would say the state of the art, to the extent that I understand it, is that we don't know. It's physically possible, it seems, uh, but what the probability is, we don't know. Okay. So, um, they're now Hollywood films. Uh, and I say that, in fact, that's a serious statement. Until, I suppose, 25 or 30 years ago, this was a very nice academic field. We wrote papers for each other. You could, you could make mistakes, and a few years later, somebody would correct them. Um, there were probably at most 1,000 people in the whole world who cared. In my own subfield, I sometimes thought there might be 40 people in the whole world who would read about it. Now, now, now uh, it's quite public. There's a lot of interesting things. Uh, the Little Ice Age, does the ocean remember the Little Ice Age? I mean, you can, it's fun. You can study uh, Bruegel's paintings and make inferences about the climate. The Thames froze. Uh, the Dutch canals froze. We don't see that today. The ocean should remember this. Okay, so um, sort of I'm going to try to wind this up. The problem here, and this is part of this human problem, I've talked about the need for determinism, for seeing explanatory uh, patterns. We evolved, and this is real, to worry about the short term. It says if you can't feed your family tonight, you, you shouldn't be worrying about what the climate will be like in 50 years. There's all kinds of examples like that. If you don't survive in the short term, what's the point of worrying about the long-term, and in fact, most of human society uh, is directed at short-term, and uh, uh, we academics live for uh, promotion, tenure, funding, the five-year NERC grant. The government lives for the next election, which is five or six years away at, at most. And then I say almost no one has any intuition. This is an educational problem for a probabilistic system. There's one example I borrowed from the uh, psychological literature. Uh, you might, quickly, what's the answer to that? I won't put anybody on the spot. Uh, you ask most people. What's the answer? 
to that, and in a different room, I would finger somebody and say, tell me. The answer is two-thirds, and a few people get it right. It's very easy to explain. Uh, there's a literature on the great difficulty that people have in dealing with uh, probabilistic uh, systems. I've said this. I'm repeating it. Uh, there's a kind of a, it's, it is a bit like medicine. You know, where there are people who tell you, well, they have a cure for cancer. Trust me. In fact, I'll sell it to you. Uh, for you. There's a long history in medicine. And of course, it's true that the experts were very wrong for thousands of years. And so you get people, as I'm told, why should we trust the experts in this? Why should we trust the pilot of the 747? There's probably good reason to trust the pilot of the 747, but why should you trust the climate scientist who says there's nothing to worry about? or we're about to undergo an abrupt transition. It's a very difficult judgment to make in the same way when you're faced with a doctor uh, who says you have a terminal condition and you get another opinion who says, you know, that's operable or we have a new, a new drug. And there's a lot of analogs here, including what I called here somewhat impolitely uh, a role for charlatans, uh, people who will tell you they, they know. So this is, really, this is really very hard. We're trying to do science uh, in a situation uh, where uh, it's quite uncertain. Uh, our records are very short. Uh, we have trouble making sense out of the records we do. It does have a religious component. Um, this was a meeting I was at. And um, part of the meeting came down to a debate over the theology, which surprised me. I hadn't realized that this had become a religious issue. It became a debate uh, over what the Bible tells you you must do. And uh, one minister is saying, the Bible says take care of the poor. The only way to take care of the poor is cheap energy. All of this global warming is way off in the future. Uh, God will provide, or technology will come to the rescue. And another minister saying, we're stewards of the earth. We had better worry about it. The same meeting, uh, these are direct quotes, uh, which you can read for yourself. The first two, in, in some ways, amusing, but uh, give you a little bit of the flavor of uh, where this is going. And, and so it is a mess. Okay. Um, so how, how, how do you work on a problem like this? And um, really, and this would be a whole talk in itself, which I'm trying to go into. This is a situation in which the science is and is likely to remain very uncertain. And yet there are real risks. The West Antarctic Ice Sheet was just one example of risks that we are running. Uh, there are many, including the possibility of really, I say, of a prolonged drought in the UK. There are models that suggest serious droughts or serious droughts in the US Southwest lasting 100 or more years. Those, those are the risks that we are uh, running. And we are confronting religious uh, beliefs. Um, how, how do you go forward uh, with this? Um, so here, here's a, actually a, a real 
question. Uh, how, how do you study a science in which the time scale of change is longer than a human lifetime? Uh, I could not, in good conscience, tell a young colleague, oh, devote your career to getting a longer record. But the science tells us we need longer records. So what I'm really talking about here, if you like, is a kind of a mismatch between a very complex and very interesting scientific problem and the structure of human psychology and human society and the political and economic uh, worlds. And um, it, it's, uh, it's a little hard to find an analog to it, but it's almost as though you were asking, a, telling a cosmologist that government policy about energy is going to depend upon them understanding the first minute of the Big Bang in detail. And of course, a cosmologist would tell you, well, you know, it's beyond us. You're going to have to make your policy decision in the absence of concrete information. Maybe in 100 years, uh, we will be able to do that. So what advice do you give? Okay. So how, how do we go forward? And Because uh, it's very important. It's a very important problem. We don't have what I would uh, call a, um, a respected authority. Somebody who might tell the Independent or the BBC, look, uh, this doesn't make scientific sense. Don't broadcast it. In, in the same way that certain governments have learned not to take predictions that there's going to be a big earthquake in Los Angeles in the next six months and make a great big headline. They've learned the hard way that just because somebody has an exciting story to tell uh, that you don't alarm the public. We, we lack such an authority. Uh, I do think the science is being corrupted by the need to exaggerate what we know, uh, to tell the story that everybody wants, what the BBC can put on in 45 seconds. It's exciting. Saying it's complicated doesn't make a story. Uh, there are testable hypotheses. Uh, it's fun to run models that predict the state of the world a hundred years out, a thousand years out, or even a million years out. I don't know how to test a model that makes a prediction. There is several out there that, for example, predicts the Earth will ice over again in a million years. Could be true. I don't know how to test that in any, any sense. And then four, which may be harder than all of them, to somehow establish an infrastructure that would permit at least future generations to have scientific records that would permit them to cope with this uh, problem in a way that is recognizably scientific. Okay, so I am at the um, end. Um, there's a great deal of uncertainty. It's likely to remain. The five-year NIRC grants, the five-year IPCC reports are not going to, quote, solve the climate problem. In the context of the public debates, the climate deniers basically are telling you it's very uncertain, which clearly I'm agreeing with. And then they say, well, that means there's nothing to worry about. And of course, that's a total non-secretary. It makes no sense at all. But that's the gist of their argument. Most climate scientists, I think, would say, look, it really is very uncertain and is likely to remain so. But we do know enough, we, we do know a great deal uh, 
to know the risks we are running. Surely, we should have a serious discussion about what I would hear as a shorthand called the insurance problem. And insurance is more than buying cover. It involves taking precautions. You, you don't store petrol in your front room uh, because you know, while you're very careful, uh, it's not a very sensible thing to do, despite what the government said a few weeks ago about the petrol strike. Most of us wouldn't do that. You put lightning rods on certain buildings. That's part of the insurance. It's the precautions uh, 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 against it. Okay. And so it is a challenge to governments and society as a whole. The scientists find this fascinating. It's a fascinating problem. I mean, there are endless interesting things to work on in the next decades. Uh, we have this political uh, agenda that we can't escape, which influences us. So I'm done. Thank you. No doubt biased, but in the example you gave um, of the, uh, the, the possibility of sea arctic ice melt influencing climate, my understanding of the coverage of that story was actually that the, the media in question were quoting scientists, and you seem to be quick to blame the media when surely uh, it's the scientists who are uh, putting out that theory that, uh, who are at fault. And it leads me to, to my question that there's an awful lot of uh, academic research done in, in the communication of uncertainty and risk, which strongly suggests that uh, the general public and indeed journalists would understand the problem better if it was framed more as risk and less an uncertainty. And I wonder if you bought into that. And, and the related question is, you say develop a reliable authority who can question the science. Who would that be? Um, okay, well, let me start with the, the second one. Uh, first, the, the only analog I know of is the one that I quoted in the earthquake prediction business. Um, over many years, there were academic scientists, largely, who got in the habit of uh, predicting there would be a major earthquake near some city. The one I recall was the panic that took place in Lima, Peru when an American academic uh, seismologist said there's going to be a major earthquake there uh, within the next, I've forgotten the numbers, three years, magnitude seven. And there was considerable panic, and uh, the U.S. Geological Survey undertook, in effect, to go to the Peruvian government and say, look, uh, there's no scientific basis for this. And what I've noticed that over the years in the U.S., the media, at least, the responsible media has learned to check with the geological survey before writing a story saying that Professor X predicts a major earthquake. I do think it's possible for some small group to coalesce exactly how we would do that who don't have a stake, a direct stake, because, you know, we're accused of 
being alarmist because we're going to get more funding. That's the standard uh, story. Uh, the, 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 uh, so I think it's possible. Uh, and I, you know, we could pursue this uh, afterwards. Uh, I think what one actually needs is significant private funding so the governments are not involved and the political process is set aside. Um, and I, I've thought about that a little bit. To come to the other question, the, the distinction between the media and the publication process actually, unfortunately, has become blurred. There's what some of us refer to as the science nature problem, in which many academics, including some perhaps in this room, their goal in life is to be published in nature with a press conference from their laboratory to appear on the BBC and ITV and everything else. And uh, these are picked up by the media. People, there seems to be a belief out there that if you're published in Nature or Science, it's true. Uh, the particular story the BBC picked up was unfortunately published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States, which to my dismay seems to have chosen to compete with Nature and Science. Uh, one of my American colleagues said to me that, you know, just because it's published in Nature or Science doesn't mean it's wrong. But we're getting there. <laughs> we are getting there. And so there, it's what I call the, uh, you know, the tabloidization of science. Uh, people living for, people, you know, scientists are human. They like attention. They want funding. And there's a corruption going on in which the distinction between uh, what I would call, I don't call it the Daily Mail and the magazine Nature, which is a profit-making organization. Uh, which is the media? Which is the scientific peer-reviewed publication? Um, professor, I have a an observation and a question. The observation uh, relates to your um, independent authority in the area of electromagnetic radiation and its effect on the human body. Um, the Institution of Engineering and Technology has run a meta-study every year of all published papers um, going back 20 years. It stops neither very poorly constructed research nor tabloid journalism on that research. So you can have a body, it doesn't work. My question relates to risk and risk mitigation. If um, a truly rational government and set of politicians decided to devote 1% of world gross product to mitigating the risks that you see in climate change, how would you spend it? I, I guess, sp speaking purely personally, uh, and as a citizen, not as a scientist, I would try very hard to do something about human population growth. Because it seems to me, you know, had the world population stabilized, say, at 3 billion people, the climate change problem would be manageable from many points of view, energy growth, settlements in coastal regions. That would be my highest priority. Now, one can have a long discussion about how you exactly you would set about doing this. But climate change is both, is fraught with issues because of people. 
you know, if there's nobody living on, no humans on the earth, the climate has changed all over the, all over the place. The, 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 the other things that I would do is, you know, and, and here, here I'm not an expert. There are people uh, here. Uh, there are things having to do with energy policy that I think are quite sensible. Uh, the U.S. government, for example, has a policy of encouraging people to settle in floodplains, places that are susceptible. Uh, to flooding uh, by subsidizing their insurance. This seems like terrible public policy, and that doesn't actually take any money. It saves you money. There's a whole series of things that it fall under the precautionary uh, principle that I subscribe to. Uh, it gets very murky when somebody says, well, how do you know that's going to have any impact? Will it make things better? Well, of course, often you don't know. But um, it, a lot of things are cheap and easy. They have, there's good reason for doing them anyway. And, of course, the standard one is, well, conservation. It preserves fossil fuels for future generations. At the same time, it reduces the pollutants going into the atmosphere. It seems like a good thing. Uh, but I, I don't want to oversimplify that, uh, that, 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 that either. Uh, it's too easy. It is a problem in this subject. Um, to oversimplify, uh, particularly areas that are outside one's own specific area of expertise. But that, that, that's my reaction. There are other things. You know, certainly uh, we're losing much of our, what little observational capability we did have. The number of Earth-orbiting satellites is declining. Uh, some of them were one deep. They fail. We won't get that kind of measurement again for 20 years. And uh, this, this seems very fiscally un, unwise. Uh, there are all kinds of parts of the climate system that are basically unobserved. Parts, the, the ocean is unobserved below about 1,000 meters. This seems crazy. What's going on out there today? I mean, that's my own subject. Uh, it wouldn't take a great deal of resource. Uh, to do it. And uh, the, 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 the question back, though, to the audience, I mean, both those questions, is how many people can evaluate risk? It seems to me that's the real problem, how bad we are collectively at evaluating risk. There's a whole literature on the desperate need for people who have an intuitive understanding of risk. And there are all kinds of examples. I mean, the standard one is that um, airplane crashes give people a sense of risk in flying that is much worse than it is, say, relative to driving your car from here to Edinburgh. So flying from here to Edinburgh is safer than driving, but how many people would understand 